Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 4 and let's remind ourselves of where we've been. Um, let's look at uh, chapter 10 and then we'll, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10 and then we'll, we'll pick it up from there. Uh, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, which is well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, just by way of review, we talked last week about um, Christian contentment. What does it mean that a believer uh, develops this this quietness of heart that in whatever circumstance he finds himself in, uh, he's able to be content. Uh, we had a real uh, fun little Bible time with my kids last night where uh, we used the John Piper uh, Bible memorization plan. Any of you guys do that? Uh, he calls it fighter verses. And um, like everything, there's an app for that. And uh, so, you know, if I whip out the three by five cards, it's like, ah, eh, but if I whip out the iPad, the kids are interested. So we use the iPad. And, um, and we were talking about First uh, Thessalonians 5, uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, we, that, that verse. And uh, we were talking about um, how on earth do you rejoice always? And how do you pray without ceasing? I mean, after all, we, we have stuff to do, right? So how do we pray without ceasing? And how do we give thanks and everything? And uh, I was trying to explain this. And, um, and I was explaining how, you know, sometimes things happen and you are sad. So maybe some, we use the example, maybe um, you know, somebody dies in the family, and we are rightly sad and, and grieved for that situation. But even in the midst of being sad and grief, we can have a joy in our hearts because we know Christ, we know his word, we know the promises that Scripture give us, and in the case of a loved one who dies, especially if it's someone who knows the Lord, we know, uh, as Wes's cousin, a situation where we know where she is, and we can rejoice in that hope. And my um, my seven-year-old theologian got this look on her face, and I think she gets it from her father because people tell me I get a look on my face sometimes too. It's kind of like the head kind of turned and the eyebrows kind of came down. 
and and her face said, um, "Daddy, that just doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. How can you be joyful and sad at the same time? How can you be thankful even in the midst of loss at the same time? Right? How can you be praying when you know she's got to do her schoolwork during the day?" And how, so it was a wonderful little discussion, but but it, it really reminded me of what we talked about in Philippians four last time that even though we might look at the checkbook and say, we don't have a whole lot, or, or maybe we do look at a trial or a situation of loss. Um, maybe there have been times of abundance in your life. Maybe there have been uh, times when things have been pretty lean. Um, and yet we look at what Paul says. He says, um, I know how to get, verse 12, along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And, and the secret we talked about last time is that contentment, according to Scripture, is, is disconnected from your circumstances. And that's just, that's just crazy logic today, because the way the culture views everything, the way we often view things is that, well, I'm happy and content when my life is good. Right? When I've got enough money in the bank, when the bills are paid, when I'm healthy, when my family is doing well, when uh, there's a job that I can go to, and, and when things are good, then I'm happy. And then when things are bad, what? Well, you can't be happy then, right? You have to somehow change your circumstances to gain that happiness back. And, and, and Paul explains here, this is one of the most helpful text, I think, and just understanding what it means to walk with God, that that contentment, according to the Bible, is not contingent upon good circumstances. And that's what he says there at the end there in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now remember, and some of you went away mourning last week, especially because there were four football games on later that day. Uh, I guess there were two Saturday, two Sunday. Um, that, that verse 13 is not a verse about football. It's not, and it doesn't matter, you know, what the banner says. The guy in the stands, you know, Philippians four thirteen. This this verse is not about your team winning. Verse thirteen tells us the secret of why a Christian can be content in any and every circumstance. And that is because whether he has a lot or little, whether things are going well or whether he's in a chronic trial, no matter what's going on, who do we have? We have Christ. And, and no circumstance can take Christ away to the Christian. And because of that, it says here, he will, uh, as I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, again, you know, heresies start when we take things out of context, right? This is not a verse that says you can do anything and everything you want if you believe in Jesus. No, by context, do, I can do all things through him who strengthens me means I can be content in any circumstance that I'm in because Jesus is going to help me in the midst of that. Jesus is going to give me what I need in whatever circumstance I find myself in. So the the takeaway from last time is that contentment is not based on our circumstances. Contentment is based on knowing Jesus and his strength in the midst of that. Now, right on the heels of that discussion, we'll pick it up here uh, on your outline there, uh, is verses 14 and following, and this will help us to see uh, how this connects to um, 
the surrounding context here, okay? He says in verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, what he's saying there is, you know, <laughs> well, look back at verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Do you remember uh, last time we talked about that? What is he speaking to there in verse 10? What's he talking about? That's right. Very good. Yeah. What he's talking about in verse 10 is the Philippians giving financial support to the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And what he says there is that something happened, something happened, and there was a lapse in the financial support that the Philippians were giving to Paul. Okay? And he's very quick to say, you know, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. So he's not saying, oh, you guys just forgot about me. Something happened. They were still concerned for him. They still wanted to support him. We don't know what happened, but something happened to where they were inhibited for a time from sending those gifts. So in verse 14, he picks it up and says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. See, the, the, the lapse in their giving was a context that God used to teach Paul about Christian contentment. And, and Paul, according to verses 11 and 13, says, that was a very good thing. It was very good that I had this lapse where I had this season of lacking and, and humble means, as he describes it in verse 12, because that helped him to learn more what it is to be content in Christ and not in your stuff. See, it's, it's easy to be content in your stuff. It's easy to be content with your health. It's easy to be content when things are going well. It takes grace to be content in Christ when those things aren't going so well. And Paul says, I learned that in part due to this lapse in their financial support. And that was a very good thing. But verse 14, he comes back and says, but you know what? Even though I learned a very good thing, I'm still thankful for your support. I'm I'm thankful that you shared with me in my affliction, meaning in his ministry, in his trial, by, by giving to them. So uh, on your outline there, though Paul has learned to be content through Christ in every circumstance, he is nonetheless thankful for the Philippians' financial assistance. Look at verse 15. Um, and you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my need. So we see also on several occasions Paul's only support came from the Philippians. In fact, you know, occasionally in uh, the historic book, uh, the book of Acts, that as you know provides the history that a lot of the epistles uh, flow out of, uh, and also other letters, sometimes you can piece together the events of what uh, some of the letters are talking about. So just hold your place here and let me show you where this is referenced in 2 Corinthians. So turn back, hold your place there, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because Paul talks about this very occasion in his letter to the Corinthians. This occasion where only the Philippians were able to help him. Uh, and this is in the context where um, Paul's talking about uh, deception 
and um, some of the things that were going on uh, in the Corinthian church. Uh, remember, they were being led astray by some Paul, uh, false uh, teachers. They were accusing Paul of being a false apostle, and 2 Corinthians is largely written as a defense of his apostleship as he comes back to uh, address some of the matters that they had charged him with. And uh, in the context here, he, he's talking about how um, you know he purposely did not come putting a financial burden on the Corinthians in order to uh, finance his ministry. Verse 7, he says, Or did I commit a sin, humbling myself, that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you without charge? There it is. He's, he's not you know, passing the credit card slider at his messages, right? He wasn't putting a burden on them uh, to do that. Verse 8, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. That's a historic reference to what he's talking about in Philippians chapter 4, that that gift, that gift after he departed from Macedonia, came from the Philippians in the midst of, of nobody else supporting him. Uh, So we see that the Philippians were not just a support of Paul, but there were occasions in his ministry when they were the only support. In fact, if you flip back to Philippians chapter uh, 4, where we were, just flip back to Philippians, and let's just remind ourselves here where we started way back at the beginning of uh, 2013 when we began our study. Um, In uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, right out of the gate, he says, I thank my God in in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy uh, in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And, And I take that to mean that the Philippians were one of the first churches to support Paul in his missionary journeys and ministry. Um, so these guys were near and dear to his heart. They were uh, helpers to him from the beginning. And even though Paul says, I've learned this great lesson that contentment is not based on whether I have a lot or have a little, he says, nonetheless, Philippians, I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful for your support in ministry. And at times they were the only ones that stood with him to help him. Okay, back to chapter 4. Uh, look at verse... Uh, so on your outline there, on several occasions Paul's only support came... Uh, from the Philippians there. Now verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, of fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. Uh, if you were an accountant and could read Greek... Uh, you would notice that in this section that we're looking at here, a lot of the terminology comes right out of the finance industry. So uh, just know as he's talking about uh, some of the terminology here, um, most of those terms refer to financial gifts or financial reception. For example, when he says, I have received everything in full, that's actually a technical term in, in finances that, that uh, deal with, like um, he's basically acknowledging them, like giving them a receipt for the gift that he gave uh, so there's financial terms going on here. But Paul is quick in verse 17 to point out that even though he's thankful for their gifts, thankful for the money that has come in from the Philippian church, uh, that he's not out here for the money. He's not here uh, looking for the gift itself. 
But what is he interested in, according to 17? What, is, what has really got him excited about receiving this financial gift? The heart of the giver, sure. And, and when a giver gives a gift for the work of the ministry, you know, whether you support Jack and Susie or David Gibson or one of our other missionaries here, or you give to the local church, you give to other missionaries or ministries, what, what is, what is the profit? What is the gain there? According to verse 17. This is the part where you talk. Yeah, fruit that abounds to your account. Uh, in, in my Bible, the New American Standard, it says the profit, but you'll notice that little diamond shape there if you have a New American Standard. And if you look to the margin, you'll note the translators have uh, given you a, a literal translation, which is fruit. That's literally what the, what the verse says. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the fruit, which increases to your account. So, so what is? put this together now. He says, I'm not, I'm not so excited about the financial gift, although that's helpful. What really excites me is what? Those are all good ideas. You're dancing around it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So so let's let's take this apart here and see if we can make sense of it. Uh, he says, I, not that I seek the gift itself, it's not the money at the end of the day that's excited me, but he seeks the fruit which increases to your account. So, so that financial gift is being used, in Paul's case, to spread the gospel, isn't it? It's, it's being used to, the, to further the work of the ministry. And we've seen throughout Philippians a number of the things that have happened. He talks about, for example, back in chapter 1, uh, in verse um, 13, or verse 12 of chapter 1, verse chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So what's happening to the gospel in Rome as he's imprisoned? What's going on? It's spreading, and it's going places it hasn't gone before because of Paul's ministry. And furthermore, he says in verse 14, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So he says, not, not only is the gospel going to places like, oh, I don't know, the Praetorian Guard, that's kind of an important uh, strategic area for people to come to know the Lord, but he says even other Christians who might be timid to stand up in the midst of a Roman Empire that's not real excited about Christianity, and they look at the Apostle Paul in prison, faithfully continuing the work of the ministry, and that example has encouraged them to be faithful also. That's fruit. Fruit is is the effect of ministry. It's the things that come when people get saved or are built up. The gospel goes forth. Families are strengthened. Churches are planted. Uh, leaders are equipped to go out. Missionaries are sent. That's fruit. And that's not a bad way to think about giving, is it? 
Because we give, whatever we give to whatever work of the ministry we do, we do it because we believe in the gospel and in the work of the ministry and that it needs to go out to the ends of the earth. Paul says, that's what gets me excited. But he's not done. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, the fruit, the effect the, the ministry that comes as a result of the financial support. And that, look what he says here, increases to your account. It increases to the account of who? The Philippians, right? You remember when uh, Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and uh, rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up yourself, for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, neither wrath, not wrath, that's an IRA, moth or rust destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's, What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there are investments that will last eternally. That's the fruit. That's the benefit. And there will be a day... There will be a day when all believers stand before the Lord and give an account for their ministry. First Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that. Uh, and in fact, we've seen it in Philippians. Look at this. Paul's thankfulness on your outline there for the Philippians' support is linked to the fruit that increases toward their spiritual account. Just let's look back at these verses to see exactly what he's speaking of here in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. as he prays for them in verse 9, that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's a day that believers stand before the Lord and give an account. And that is a reference to that day there. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. What happens on that day? Well, he's just told us in chapter 2, verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or or disputing so that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Watch this. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. What Paul is saying is, he's saying, I am pouring into you, Philippians. I am uh, giving my life to build you up spiritually because I know one day I will stand before the Lord and I want my work to endure. I don't want on that day to find out that all my efforts were in vain but resulted in fruit amongst the Philippians on that day. And then we see it again in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. 
just a few weeks ago, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So so in those three places and, and scattered throughout the rest of Scripture, we see Paul saying, the reason we're working, the reason we're striving, the reason I'm ministering is because there's a day that's coming where Jesus is going to come back and we'll all stand before him, we'll give an account for our work. And we want, according to 1 Corinthians 3, remember how 1 Corinthians describes it, that, that the work will be tested by fire? Remember that? And the work that endures the test of fire is shown to be true ministry, true work uh, that was done. And Paul says, we strive for a day that that reward, that, that testing of our work will endure. So what does that have to do with financial giving? Paul says this, I'm excited that you guys have given to support me because it's producing fruit for the gospel. And that ministry, in a sense, is an investment. It's storing up treasures in heaven on the day when Christ comes to reward believers and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what he says. He says, I'm excited about this gift because your gift is producing fruit and that fruit is storing up um, benefits in your spiritual account that Christ himself will reward you for. That's what he's excited about. That, that, that's spiritual economics there, isn't it? Right? That's spiritual accounting. Um, we give, we strive, we sacrifice. Why would we do all those things? I mean, can I just ask you a question? Why do you give? Why do you give of your time? Why do you give of your money? Well, why, do you, why do you do that? Why do you have the priorities you have? If we follow the example of the Apostle Paul here, we see that what, what wound him up in ministry was not the money, but the ministry that happened through it. And the spiritual investments that those were that increased their account for the day that Christ would come and reward them for it. You know, that's, a, that's a great way to look at ministry, it's especially um, especially if, if you know personally of people that have blessed you in your ministry. A great perspective is to say, I'm excited about that. Because in helping me, in partnering with me, in encouraging me, encouraging this church, they're storing up treasures in heaven. And that's a very good thing. Verse 18, But I have received everything in full. I have, I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Notice he doesn't even give the amount here. What's he focused on as he talks about, you guys remember, um, this is some background information, but um, do you remember who Epaphroditus was? Who, who was he? Okay, you're thinking of um, Onesimus and Philemon, yeah. Close. This is a different guy here. Um, this was probably the man that hand-delivered the letter of Philippians to Paul in Rome. So he came from the uh, Philippian church to Rome, and as he brings the letter to Paul, he also brings this gift that Paul is talking about here. 
And he says, I just want you to know I've received everything. I've received your gift in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. He's just, that's a way of saying I'm thankful for your generosity. I've received everything in complete uh, fullness, and I'm thankful for that. Epaphroditus delivered it. But again, notice his perspective. He says, what is it? It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to who? So what's his perspective on this gift? He's thinking about it in relation to their ministry and their standing before the Lord. It's a fragrant aroma. That that phrase is used a number of times throughout Scripture uh, to describe um, a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Uh, And then an acceptable sacrifice, uh, same thing. It's sacrificial. It's Levitical language. Um, Talking about a, a sacrifice that's offered to God that God accepts and is pleased by. And then in case we miss the imagery, he says it's well-pleasing to God. God is honored when we give to the work of the ministry and fruit comes from it. And then verse 19, actually on your outline, um, thus his focus on their most recent and generous gift delivered to Paul by Epaphroditus is that it is pleasing to God. He is full and has abundance because of their generosity. Notice he said, he does not say, thank you very much, now I'm more comfortable and can be content. Right? Because he, he's past that, he's learned. He's learned that that's not where contentment comes from. He's, he's thankful that God is pleased by their giving. And then this wonderful verse, uh, many of you have probably memorized it, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And and again, we we don't want to start a cult here, so let's not take that out of context. Because you you can put that on a 3 by 5 card, you can put that on a banner, you can put it on a name it and claim it uh, uh, verse t-shirt or something like that and think, well, see, God's going to give me everything that I want. But notice that's not what the verse says. This is not a name it and claim it verse. This is not saying God's going to give you everything uh, that you want, every every end. What does it say? It says, my God shall supply all your... Is that different than wants? I remember um, years ago sitting under uh, Stuart Scott. You you know, um, if I can take a little bit of a rabbit trail here... Um, in, in counseling literature, in, in when we think about helping people and, and people that write books on marriage and how to deal with your problems, needs are very, very popular. And, and here's, here's basically how, how the, the secular thinking goes. Um, if I just have my needs met, I'll be happy. Right? That's a tenet of modern psychology and the therapeutic culture we live in. So, so, so you get books like this. His needs... Her needs. And the idea is that to have a healthy marriage, the husband just meets the wife's needs, the wife just meets the husband's needs, and it's kind of this 50-50 arrangement, and as long as everybody does their part, everything's good. What's the problem with that? Well, let's see. Um, how many of you are, are, are not married to a sinner? Let's, let, let's start there, okay? Uh, we'll, okay, Good. Uh, I remember what our college pastor used to say about compatibility in marriage. He said, you know, you never have compatibility because, you know, two Christians that are two sinners that marry, marry each other are never compatible, right? That's true. The problem is, who's ever writing the book, who's ever seeking the treatment, they come up with what the need is, right? 
Well, I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. I need a certain amount of money in the bank so I can do this. I, I need to have a clean house. I need to have a family that supports me. I need to have children that are believers. I need that. We come up with all these things. And what they really are, see, we're using the wrong word. What we're really saying is those are things I would like to have. Those are things I want. But at the, at the point that become needs, things that we have to have, you know, we, we read in, in Psalm 115 about these people that worship idols. Well, the Bible has a, a category for what we call idols of the heart. And those are things that we want, that we need, that God has not told us that we need. And Dr. Scott, uh, back at Master Seminary years ago, was real helpful. He said, if you study the Bible, you discover that people, if you think about it, really only need two things. And the first thing they need is they need to walk with God. Right? That, that's what we were made to do. We go back to Genesis 1. We were made by God and for God. Colossians 1.16. All things were made by Him and for Him. We were made for God, for a relationship with Him. That's a need. And then there's another need, and that is we need... God's help. Because of our sin, we can't walk with God. Because of our sin, we can't change our condition. Now, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. There, there's none who even understands, let alone does good and fears God. We're, we're too depraved. We're, we're too lost. So we need to walk with God. That's need number one. Need number two is we need God to help us. We need God to rescue us because we can't walk with God unless he does something to change our condition. He does something to rescue us out of our sin. And then I'll never forget what Dr. Scott said after that. He said, after that, after that, all needs are determined by God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, these are real needs. Those are things we really, really, really need. And apart from that, God decides what I need. God determines what I need. And that's why this verse says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, God gets to determine what that list looks like. God knows you and me infinitely better, and he decides what happens. He decided that Paul was going to go to prison. He decided that Paul was going to have seasons of, of humbleness and want as well as seasons of prosperity and blessing. Maybe you can look back on your life and you see there were times when you had all sorts of things and health and, and then you had seasons of trial and tribulation and hard circumstances. You say, well, what is that? That's your heavenly father deciding what you need. Yes. Well, and I, that's a really good point, because think about this. If, if we even read basic necessities into this, food, water, shelter, what's the problem with that, if that's what we think this verse is teaching? What's that? Okay, it could be a degree, meaning, you know, how much. Or, but, 
But, I mean, do people die of starvation every day? Do people die of exposure every day? Do people die every day because they don't have clean drinking water? Sure they do. So, so we need to be really careful how we read this verse. My, my, my premise here is that God determines what the need is. God is the one who decides what that is for every individual person. Now, not that we shouldn't try to meet needs and help people to live and all those things. Not, not saying we shouldn't do any of that, but ultimately God determines what a person really needs and doesn't need. Yes, Sheila. That's right. Yeah, and um, I appreciate you saying that um, because, you know, usually when somebody starts off the question, how could a good God, I just stop right there, time out, throw the penalty flag and pull the playback. Um, they've started with a wrong premise. They've started with a premise that says people have certain things that they deserve. And God, being a good God, and they sort of make him into his image, should meet those things, should, should give them those things that they deserve. But the text I just quoted in Romans 3 says, what we deserve based on our depravity and sin and rebellion, what we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is wrath. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we are by nature children deserving of wrath, right? So when you start with that premise and you think, well, and God sacrificed his son for rebels that deserve judgment and wrath. That totally changes the perspective, doesn't it? Now we see that if I... Remember Job? Um, I'm sorry, I, I go on... I have like flashbacks to Job occasionally. Remember when he says, you know, he's just lost all ten of his kids, he's lost all his livelihood, his, his, his crops, his animals. He's lost basically everything in his life that was meaningful except his wife at that point. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Unless he was insane, and I don't think Job was insane, how could he say that? He could only say that if he saw everything in his life as a gift of grace. Right? Meaning, I have it, but I didn't deserve it. I have it, but it's only because God gave it to me. And if God chooses to take it away, he has the right to do that. Bless his name. He gave it. I didn't deserve it. He took it away. That's okay. I didn't deserve it on the, in the first place. So, so the, one of the things that Job teaches us is that when we start to view everything through the lens of grace, it's not, oh, why did God take that away from me? It's, why was he so gracious to give it to me even for a time? You see the difference? So, coming back to Philippians here, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Remember, God defines what those needs are. And, and, and like I gave you the illustration, like me as an adult, I know way better what my four-year-old needs than he does. You know, he would drink Gatorade and eat granola bars all day, and you know, if it was up to him. Um, how much more our Heavenly Father knows what we need um, as his children. All right, let's wrap this up. And God will meet the needs of the Philippians even, oops, they're, they're missing a as there, even as he has provided for Paul. He will meet the needs of Philippians even as he has 
met the needs of the Apostle Paul. And, and, and subtly in that is, is the hope that the Philippians will learn this lesson of contentment as well that he shared with them. Okay, then he ends with this uh, greeting in doxology. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Notice how it, it started, the epistle started with glory to God. It ends with glory to God. May he receive glory forever and ever. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Um, there's a little bit of a concluding surprise here, isn't there? Lucius Domitus Ahenobarbus was born on December 15, 37 AD in Antium near Rome. He was the only son of Gnaeus Domitus and Ahenobarbus and Agrippina the younger, who was the sister of Emperor Caligula and the great-granddaughter of someone who you will know, Caesar Augustus. Lucius's father was described by a historian as a murderer and a cheat who was charged by the Emperor Tiberius with treason, adultery, and incest, and he died when Lucius was only two. Though not in line to do so, at 17 years old, Lucius became emperor of Rome in 54 AD when Claudius died. And at that time, he took the name, the name that all of you will be much more familiar with than Lucius. He took the name Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus. And we simply know him as Nero. His reign was characterized by scandal and adultery, slander, and the murder of his would-be competition to the throne, as well as eventually his own mother, who kind of got on the wrong side between his advisors and her. So they were both advising him differently, and so she, he killed her. And he was also likely involved in a homosexual relationship as well. But Nero is most famous for what? What do we know him most famously for? The burning of Rome in 64 A.D., Rome caught fire, and uh, there's good historical evidence that it was actually arson. Uh, but what, whatever was the cause, uh, Nero took occasion to blame this growing group of people that not too many folks liked, the Christians. And thus began what is known in history as the Neronian persecution, uh, one of the darkest times in church history where... Uh, Nero um, would burn Christians at the stake, crucify them. Uh, one of his favorite things to do is he would put them in his back patio and set them on fire to light his gardens. Or he would take them to the Colosseum and he would put animal skins on them and then send the lions or other beasts there to devour them limb to limb. And um, he was so... Depraved, so you can put a, put a word on it, just perverse. Um, he was eventually declared an enemy of the state uh, and then committed suicide before they could kill him. In that dark family, God took the fruit, the gift that the Philippians had given and did something amazing. What did he do, according to verse 22? 
What did he do? He used the Philippians' gift to produce the work of the ministry, the fruit of the ministry through the Apostle Paul's ministry and life to bring some in Caesar's very own household to Christianity. This is Nero. The Caesar there is Nero. This is the guy that's going to you know, kill all these Christians here a little bit. And God took that gift of this little teeny tiny church, remember? And started a gospel ministry in Caesar's very own household through the Apostle Paul to the end at which some of these guys came to know the Lord. The end. You and I will never know what our ministry, what our giving, what our sacrifice, what you make an effort to do every week for the cause of the gospel, you may never know the effect of that. And I can guarantee you that as the Philippians sacrificed to give to the Apostle Paul in his ministry, they never would have imagined that people in Caesar's own family would become Christians because of that effort. But they did. And obviously Nero was not a Christian, but you, but you know what's, what's kind of neat about this? There's a pretty good likelihood that he heard the gospel, if that was true. And it's also likely that some of the first Christians that he killed could have been in his own household. So as we, uh, as we conclude our study here today, and we'll come back and do the, the flyover next week, um, you never know... <laughs> You never know what your efforts, your money, your giving, your sacrifice may produce in ministry. And isn't it amazing that this God used this little church to bring conversions in Nero's own family? But you know what? That's the God we serve, isn't it? That's what he's able to do. Let's pray.